Welcome to the Gateway.Live podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray that God speaks to you through this message and through his word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in. In this process of being a Christian, I've thought about a couple things. It just seems like there's a lot of opposites in the Christian life. And when I said death to life, that sounds like an oxymoron, but think about some of the other things in the Christian life that seem to be upside down. Up is down. Jesus said it in uh, Matthew 20. He said, whoever wants to be the leader among you must be your servant. Think about the idea of giving. You, you give first, then you receive. Humility first, then exaltation. Weakness is the path to power. You put faith first, then you see the evidence and expression later. Submission, giving in, brings freedom. Everything about this Christian life sometimes just seems backwards. It's like, what in the world? How does that work? Well, I want to take us to a passage in Romans chapter 6. And if you have your Bible or if you're using your device, we're going to stay in Romans 6 a lot today. And I'd like for, if we were just refocusing our attention back on just 11, 11 verses, but if you have a, a, a Bible that you can look at or in your device, if you can do highlights on it, I want you to look at the number of times in these 11 verses that the word death and life pop out. So let's start with verse 1. Well then... Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? It's a question. Do I just keep sinning so grace can keep on coming? Verse 2, he answers it very quickly. Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? There's two right there. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism? So how are we joined to Christ? We're joined in baptism. He's giving us a very clear path that he's going to go to a little different. We join him in his death, for we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we've been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was verse 6 we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives we are no longer slaves to sin for when we died with Christ we were set free from the power of sin and since we died with Christ we know we'll also live with him we're sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. And when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you, that's us, should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus, dead to the power of sin, alive to God through Christ Jesus. This, this book, it depends on your, your focus point of how you look at it. This, some people think, well, this is just a great uh, historical document. 
Uh, it's nonfiction. Uh, some people's idea that it gives us historical data that might be used, in, but this is more than that. And so to, we just read from a, a passage in this book, and it reveals that this is more than a document. This is more than history. This is more than information. This is the autobiography of God himself telling us about how he wants us to live our lives. And he says, if you come to a place that you die, then you can live. But you've got to die first, and then you can live. So when I looked at these verses, 11 of them, I found 20 times in 11 verses that there is mention of death and life. And we've been in this series called The Unusual Life. And the unusual life is finding that place that death comes so we can have life, that unusual life. So the question is, if, I, if I'm going to have this unusual life, and, and it's going to be death to life, it's going to seem a little bit backwards, what's the starting point to get me going. The starting point of all of us, every single one of us, is grace. Grace. In Ephesians 2, verses 5 through 6, even though we were, the same words are being used, dead because of our sins, he gives us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus, even though we were dead because of our sins. The analogy and the reality is that sin brings death. Now, now, now here's the scary part. Romans tells us that all of us have sinned. There's not one of us in this room that have bragging rights that says, that's not me, I'm off, I'm clean. Every one of us have sinned against God, and with that sin comes death. Our hearts were hijacked by sin. Things that we never even meant to do, we, we went ahead and did them, and our hearts got hijacked. I'm like, why did I do that? And, and then you look back and you say, I can't believe I went down that path. I can't believe I fell to that again. Because somewhere along the path as sin comes in, it just hijacks us more and more. But the good news is there's a liberator who wants to set us free. He wants to take away the terrorism of sin in our hearts and allow us to be free with him. And I believe that somewhere in we've got to begin to grasp this idea that there's got to be death first to have real life. Ephesians 2 I'm going to go to verse 4. I'm going to read down into what we just read, but I want to jump up one verse, and it explains it a little bit more clear. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. There's the key right there. God is rich in mercy, and he loved us that even though we were dead, even though we were sinning, even though we were trespassing God's law, even though we were doing things that we had been hijacked into, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. The word grace, many of you in Sunday school, if you went, you were taught that grace is the unmerited favor of God, and that's exactly what it is. But let me go just one step deeper. The, the root word of the word grace is the, word, the Greek word hadis. And it means gift. Gift. It's a gift that is given without any conditions to the recipient. That would be us. God's giving his hadith, his gift to us, the recipients, 
without any type of condition. Notice it says, but God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. The only condition is not on the recipient, it's on the giver, that the giver chooses to say, I'm going to give you this, and I decide to pay for it. How did God pay for his hadith, his gift, his grace to us? God paid for it with his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 and 10, it goes on further to says that we're God's masterpiece. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now, I want you to do something, if you would. I want you to turn to your neighbor and look them right in the eye, if at all possible, possibly someone that you did not come with, and say to them, you're a masterpiece. I mean, look at it and say, wow, you are a masterpiece. You're God's masterpiece. He created you anew in Christ Jesus, and he has good things planned for you. He paid the price so that the plans that he had for you long ago will come to pass. You say, well, my life's not gone quite that way. And you may be sitting here today and say, you know what, I've heard all this stuff about Jesus, and I've heard this thing about Christ, and I've heard this thing about eternity, but my life, you don't understand, my life is over. I've, I've messed up so much, and there's no hope for me. I'm telling you, yes, there is hope for you, because there was a liberator who stepped in and said, I will pay, I will give you the gift of grace and I've already paid for it. You just have to receive it. God has specific, intentional plans tailored just for you. No matter what's transpired in your life to this point. But God, who is rich in mercy. So grace, another definition besides the unmerited favor of God, and this one I, I heard years ago, is grace is the ability to do what I cannot do myself. You may need to write that down. Grace is the ability to do what I cannot do myself. God has created us anew. He accomplishes it. It's his doing through Jesus Christ. Not through my works, not through my goodness, not through anything that I can bring before God. It was accomplished by the price of Jesus Christ's life on a cross and paid for my sin. An innocent man took the pain of me, the guilty one. It's, it's kind of like in my life that he wants to say, I want to make you anew. I want to give you a remodel job. It's like getting an HGTV makeover. It's like the Property Brothers coming in and saying, I'm going to make this look like it never looked before. And, I, and some of you, that needs to just build up a little bit of hope. You say, well, my life has been really messed up. I'd love for the Property Brothers to come in and work on this thing right here. And I believe that God is ready to step into your life. You say, but you don't know the whole circumstance. You know, I don't, but he does. Someone once said that grace is also those five letters, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus wants to declare us through the, through the cross that you're acquitted of all charges. Those things that only you know about, those things that maybe nobody else in this earth knows about, but you do, and they haunt you. He wants to acquit you of those. The, the judge of the universe wants to step in and say, not guilty, not guilty. 
In March of 1776, the year that our nation became a country, there was a song that was published that we sing to this day. You say, you're, you're kidding me. There's a song that old that we still sing? A young minister was traveling through England, and in the process of traveling, he uh, encountered a cloudburst and torrential rains on the English coast. And he realized, I can't keep going. And so he looked for a rocky overhang where he'd be protected from the wind and from the rain. And he wrote a song that reflects this idea of God's grace. And it's still sang to this day, and it's called Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft, hiding place for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. The double cure for sin. No matter where it's been in your life, the double cure. So if you're taking notes, I want to give you three points that I believe will help us to make this unusual life journey that you can go from where you were to where God's destiny is for you. And here's the first. It, it takes, number one, it takes death. There has to be a death. Let's go back to Romans 6, if you've got your finger there in your Bible or on your device. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 again. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not, since we have died to sin. How can we continue to live in it? Notice the operative word there is dead to sin, died to sin. Dying to sin is not a reprieve. Dying to sin is not a timeout on the sin you've been. Look, I know I've really been sinning, so I'm just going to take a timeout on sin, and then I'm going to jump back into it. It is death. It is putting to death. You say, well, how do I put to death the stuff in my life? How do I take these things that have been haunting me, these areas of my life that just seem like they just keep coming back? The path to death is through repentance. Repentance. It's a word that sometimes we don't want to talk about because repentance is us coming to grasp with the reality of where we're at. The word in the original Greek is the word metanoia, meta after noia to think. In other words, it's the learning to think again. It's the learning to change and think differently after something has taken place. Some people describe repentance as doing a 180. It's the act of turning it's the thinking again, I did this, now I'm not going to do this. In other words, you learn nothing new by getting kicked by a horse a second time, except it was really dumb and it hurt the first time. Now it's dumb, I did it again. But how do I get to the place that I submit instead of to my will, I submit it to God's will? I love what Romans says in chapter 2. He says, you didn't think, did you, that just by pointing your finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all of your misdoings? Have you ever tried that with God? You know, you start feeling really bad about some things and, you know, that, 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 that touch of God's presence. And, and you say, but, yeah, but I know what they're doing. I, I know that they're doing stuff worse than I am. And then, well, you, what about them? But notice, he says, you didn't think that just by pointing your finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all of your misdoings and from coming down on you hard. Or do you think that because he's such a nice guy, God, he'll let you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. I love Eugene Peterson in the message. He just, I mean, God is kind, but he's not soft. And look at this analogy that he gives us. In kindness, 
he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into a radical life change. If you've ever had kids and uh, you remember that there's times you have to firmly take your child's hand and lead them to radical life change. Have you ever had to do that? Excuse me, you're coming with me right now. And I think sometimes God, in his infinite love for us, just says, man, you've been trying really hard on that. You've been trying a lot of behavior modification, but come on. And he grabs our hand and he says, it's time for radical life change. Romans 2 and 4, we just read it, but from the New King James says, the goodness of God, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Repentance, many times what we think is, well, I know when I've really repented, I get real emotional. No, that doesn't always have to be that. Repentance may involve emotion, but it's primary and primarily an act of volition, an act of will. Notice what I said. It's not like, man, I feel really bad I got caught. But it's more of a volition to say, that's what I did do. I'm changing. Romans 6 and 6 says, We know that our sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified. They're dead. So repentance is denouncing the former way and submitting and experiencing a reversal. It's also assuming an attitude of humility and teachability. In other words, if I've done what I've always done, I'm going to keep getting what I've always got. And so there's got to be a reversal and I've got to become humble and teachable to move me from this to what God has for my life. It's an ongoing submission to God's shaping in our lives. He talks about our old sinful selves. That's our pre-conversion life, what we were before we became a Christian under the unrestrained dominion of sin. When we just, didn't matter what it was, we just kept giving into it and giving into it. And he says, that's your old sinful self. It needs to be killed. It needs to be crucified. And then he said, you do that so that sin might lose its power in our lives. That, that very power of sin that is wielded over you now becomes inoperative, it becomes defeated, it becomes deprived of its power, but it does not mean that sin's power becomes extinct or it's totally destroyed. I don't know about you, but since I gave my heart to Christ, there have been times that sin's tried to walk back in. And I can't always tell you that I've done perfect, but I do know this, that when I have messed up, my father has been there. Come on, give me your hand. Let's go. He lovingly wants me to pull to radical life change. So the first thing I think that needs to happen is there must be death. Do you know why we call this area up here an altar? Is it because at an altar is where things die? It's at an altar where things die. At the end of this message on both of our campuses in Tempe and here, we're going to give you a time that if there's some things that have been living inside of you that you're like, I can't take this anymore, we're going to give you an opportunity to say, I want to, I want to crucify this. I want to come before God, and I want to be able to say, at this altar, I lay this down. I repent, God, of these things in my life. First is death. The second, according to Romans, is baptism. Obedience to baptism. So write that down. One is death. Number two is obedience to baptism. 
You say, well, what, why, there's a lot about baptism I don't understand. So why baptism? Why after death is Romans 6 so adamant about baptism? Well, first of all, Jesus commissioned and commanded it. In Matthew 28, 19, he says, Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice it's not called the great suggestion. It's the great commission that God tells us, baptize them. Peter answers the question of why baptism in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 38. This weekend is called Pentecost weekend. Today is Pentecost Sunday. 2,000 years ago when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit took place in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, that's the setting of this passage I'm getting ready to read on today being Pentecost Sunday. I think it's interesting that in verse 37, Peter stood up, preached this message, and it says in verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each of you must repent. There's that word again. Turn to God. There it is again. Repentance is turning, not staying. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The, second, the third reason that I believe why baptism is shows unity in the church. Ephesians 4 says, For there's one body, one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. There is a spirit of unity. In fact, in all of that right there, you'll see that God is calling us to live in unity. And one of those things is he says there's one baptism. In this reference, it's refer referencing the baptism in water. So why baptism? I think we get that. Jesus did it. Jesus was baptized at 30. But the what goes on behind that baptism? What's the what? I understand the why. I, I can grasp that. But what happens? Do you just get wet? No. Romans 6, back to our passage we've been reading. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. Here's what happens at baptism. We're being buried like Jesus was. We died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Notice, baptism, buried with Jesus, raised from the dead, we can be raised with the glorious power of the Father. That's the Holy Spirit, and we can live new lives. Baptism is basically a dynamic burial service. It's a burial. When something dies in this day and age, after the death, there's a burial. And that's exactly what it is. Once I've repented, then there needs to be a burial. It is a leaving behind. It's a bearing of the sinful, selfish practices and ambitions of my past. It's, it's saying, I'm dead to that old stuff. I'm dead to my doubts, my fears, my passivity, my pride, my rebellion, all those things. I want to I bury that stuff. I love what Preston says. He says this, God never meant for you to be a dead man walking. He desires for you to be a buried man living. Buried how? Baptized Letting all that stuff go, letting it go behind, bearing it, and then walking away from it, and walking in life, and walking in power. That's God's plan for your life. Baptism, the what of it is. Here's the interesting thing about the word baptism. The, the word that we use in our English language, baptism, is what's called a transliteration. 
a transliteration. What does that mean? That means there wasn't an English word that would translate over from the Greek to English. And so what they do, they transliterate. They take the Greek letters and they place an English letter with it. So the Greek word is baptizo. And from baptizo, we have in our English language, baptism. The Greek word means to dip or immerse, to submerge under. In fact, the prevailing practice of the first two centuries of the church was baptism by immersion. After those first two centuries, other forms did come about, pouring or sprinkling. But if this is the autobiography of God and what God wants over our lives, there's something I have to go back to, and that is there is no New Testament passages anywhere that state or imply anything other than immersion, submersion, baptism. Even the implication of baptism of children. Here at Gateway, we dedicate our children to God, believing as they become a believer, whether they're seven or whether they're 70, they will be baptized after they have died to sin. Now you say, well, well what about me? I, what if I was in another uh, environment, another church, and, and I, was bapt I was baptized differently? Well, first of all, we celebrate if at, at your birth, uh, in your first early days of life, if your parents did that, we celebrate what your parents believed over you and what they declared over you. But now as an adult, have you made that decision to say, I have repented, I have confessed Jesus as Lord, and now I want to bury the things in my life. See, baptism is literally a washing, it's a, which I believe is a fitting symbol in our salvation because if, if that stuff is on us, not just till we bury it, but I want it washed off of me. Look at Acts twenty-two sixteen. What are you waiting for? In fact, I say that even today. If you've not been baptized, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 10 and 11, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers. That's a pretty tough crowd right there. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be. That sounds like, wow, that's uh, top 10 most wanted in America, whatever it may be. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Baptism to me is a washing, but also baptism is a release of grace. Now, remember I said that the starting point is grace. At baptism, I believe there's grace that is released again. Now, you say, what do you mean by that? Well, Colossians 2 and 11 helps us with this, of this release of grace. And when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. But Christ performed a spiritual circumcision. I believe something happens at baptism, not just you get wet, but there's a circumcision of the heart that takes place, and he classifies it in Romans, I mean in Colossians 2, he says, it's the cutting away of your sinful nature. How? Verse 12, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to live a new life because you trusted in the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. See, Christ alone is what saves us. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is an act of spirit-enabled repentance. It's a dying, and it's an expression that I'm being buried. As Jesus was buried, I'm being buried. 
And it's the finished work of the cross that saves us. Not my works, but it's me being obedient to what he's asked me to do. Look at this passage in 1 Peter and chapter 3 and verse 20. See if this makes it even a little clearer. Those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat, only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. Now, this is New Testament. Talk about an Old Testament story. Most of us know the story of Noah and the building of the ark, and then the, the entire earth was flooded with water. And let me ask you something. What happened to everything outside the ark? It died. Only what was in the ark survived. So let's get this. Make it very clear. Those who disobeyed, God waited patiently. God didn't just rush to judgment. He waited patiently. But only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. Verse 21. And that water. What water? The waters of the flood. They are a picture of baptism. It separates us, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response Notice, baptism is a response to God from a clean conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to read again, being Pentecost Sunday, Acts 2. Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away. Notice now, he's saying, Peter's preaching to the people in front of him, and he said, it's to you, it's to your children, and it's to those far away. Now, if you're here and you're a careful student of Scripture, you're going to ask, what does it mean far away? Is he talking about from Mesopotamia to Rome? Is he talking about from Mesopotamia to Egypt? The word there, far away, in the original Greek is maklan. It means a great distance in space, time, or degree. Let me ask you something. Is God still calling people to this day? Yes. He's saying... You can receive this. You can experience this to those that are far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. So the first thing is death. Second is baptism. And third is life is received. Let's wrap it up with this. Life is received. Let's go back to Romans. We've been looking there a lot. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. See, sin had sentenced us to death row. Our course of life, our choices had placed the sentence of death over our lives. And the inevitable is facing us, but, but through Romans 6, it tells us that I don't have to have the death over my life. I can receive the life of Jesus Christ because Christ died for me. And if I will die to my past, I can live again because I can live to the glory of God. There is a Redeemer who can change my sentence, and his name is Jesus. Because when he died, he died to break the power of sin. Write this down. Many times we need a breakup with our past to have a breakthrough into God's potential. We need a breakup with our past to have a breakthrough into God's potential. Do you know that that can happen today if this never happened to you? You can have a breakup with your past through repentance. 
you should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Here's what happens. Our behavior, many times we, 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 we realize there's stuff in our life and, and we say, I don't want to do that anymore. Have you ever done something and you felt so bad and, and you made a promise to God and you made a promise to other people, I'm not ever going to do that again? Okay, just me. No, no, no. How many of you ever done that? You, you said, I'm never going to do it again. And you turned right around and you did it again. And then guess what? The next time you did it, what did you say? That's my last time. That, that's it. No more. Okay, maybe one more. What we get in trouble is because our behavior is linked to our belief. Our behavior is linked to our belief. Stick with me. A belief is a statement about reality that you believe is true. You believe it's true. Doesn't mean it is true, but you believe it is. For example, if you happen to have gone through a, a nasty divorce and during that time you were told you can never love anybody, you don't have the capacity to love, that's why I'm leaving you, then what do you now have to deal with in your belief system? I am unlovable. And then guess what? Your behavior comes out of that and you act like when you meet somebody, sorry, I'm unlovable. If you've been told all of your life you are a mistake and you're never going to mount anything and that becomes a part of your belief system, then you live with a belief system and your behavior is I'm never going to get anywhere. I'm never going to be anywhere. What would happen if you begin to realize that we read in Romans 6 that God had plans that he made a long time ago for you. And he paid for those plans with the blood of his own son, Jesus. And he wants those plans to come to pass. What happens if all of a sudden your belief system started moving that direction and your behavior said, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm not a loser, I'm a winner. I've been redeemed. I'm no longer under the curse of sin. I'm now living because see, here's what happens is my belief systems is what dictates how I live my life. If I believe I'm alive, then my behavior is I'm alive in Christ. Let me say this. Instead of attempting behavior modification, that said, I'll never do it again. I'm gonna, have you ever said, I'm just going to try harder. That's what I need to do. I'm going I'm to try twice as hard this time. I'm not going to do it again because I'm going to try. And how many times, every time you try a little harder, it never gets you anywhere because you still believe that you're held captive by that very thing. When you change your belief system, you can embrace Romans 6 and 10. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. I close with this. There's three things I'm going to ask today. That this could be your opportunity on this Pentecost Sunday to move from death to life. No more living in that bondage. The first thing is maybe you're here and you need to receive the grace of God. You, maybe you're here and you say, I have never given my heart to Jesus Christ. I've never called on the name of the Lord. Romans 10 and 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. 
That's why, again, we call this the altar. This is a place that at the end of this service, if you've never done that, one of our friends will be up here and they'll be more than glad to lead you in repentance to say, I'm going to die to my past. Maybe this is the day. You've been wanting to do this. You know that your life, you don't want to keep living like that. Maybe there's some areas of your life that you need to repent of and you need to bring them to this altar and just say, they're dead. God, I repent of it. The second thing is maybe this is the day to be obedient in baptism. We read Acts twenty two sixteen. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. If you've repented of your sins, you've died, you've confessed Jesus as Lord, then be baptized. There's two reasons why people delay baptism. The first one is, I'm not good enough. Well, guess what? You probably never will be. On our own, we never will be. Our right to baptism is not based on our performance. It's grounded in his mercy and his grace. The second reason people delay baptism is fear. Well, what if I get baptized and then I mess up again? Oh, you are. But 1 John says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, that if we'll confess our sins, he is faithful. God is faithful and just to forgive us. Thanks for joining us on Gateway.Live. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com.